Welcome to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast with your hosts, Richard Hill and Matthew Darlitz. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. I'm Matthew Darlitz, Editor-in-Chief of the Science of Psychotherapy. And as always, I'm with... Richard Hill, his good mate and friend, who's uh, not in the same room. We're we're a couple of thousand miles apart. You're in Mm -hmm. Queensland, I'm in Sydney, and uh, this is all terrific and enjoyable. We've got horrible weather. If if anybody (laughs) in the world is having horrible weather, so are we. But but anyway, it's just great to come together. It's uh, it's good to chat. It's good to we don't see you uh, out there, but we know you're there because there's statistics that we get. So <laughs> yeah. so it's it's well worth. And remember, if you if you really enjoy what we're doing and you you want to support it as well as enhance your own uh, ongoing education, just come into the psychotherapy.net and um, and become part of our tribe. Now you certainly can subscribe and become part of the of the education platform we've got, but. You can also just come in and, and join in the newsletter so that yeah. you see the sorts of things and there's um, quite a lot of material and quite a lot of things happening as we go. Yeah, wonderful. We'd love to have you as part of the tribe. Now, well, where, are we, where are we going today, Matt? We're off to Bath. We're off to Bath. Fantastic. <laughs> I, I, people have said that I'm a bit unpleasant. <laughs> no. So, so yeah, yeah, we're in the UK. We're, we're going over to the UK to talk to Andrew Jameson, and he's worked in the music business in the UK for over 40 years, but we're not going to talk about music. After coming out of the other side of his own midlife transition, he retrained uh, as a psychotherapist, and he's now a practicing psychotherapist, and he's written a book. Look, it's, I just really relate. I've had a chat with uh, Andrew the other day and I just thought, like brothers, I mean, he started his studies in psychotherapy late in life and everyone said, don't do it, you're too old. <laughs> but he seems to be having a ball with his experience. He's, yeah. he's a very passionate guy. I'm really, really looking forward to going over to Bath and talking to him. Okay, so uh, let's go over and talk to Andrew Jameson about his new book, Midlife, Humanity's Secret Weapon. Andrew, welcome to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. It's so great to meet you. Well, it's wonderful to be invited. I'm so delighted that um, thanks to COVID, we can now uh, manage this 12,000 mile distance between us. (laughs) Yes, we can. (laughs) I mean, it's changed everything, hasn't it? Uh, The Zoom revolution. Yes, it's it's wonderful, and and I I've had I've been so impressed with reading your marvelous The Practitioner's Guide to the Science of Psychotherapy. So, it's uh, since my initial chat with Richard. So it's been a very exciting week for me. So thank you very much for 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 inviting me today. I'm I'm thrilled. Oh, that was that was lovely. You've you've given a plug for our book before we've been able to even plug yours, uh, because. <laughs> well, I, but your book is only just out in March, wasn't it? It's not that that. That's really, right. Uh, long no, that that's published. right. So, and and in England, uh, so in England, America in uh, yeah. March, England in April, and Australia, Australia's actually already out of stock. So uh, well, I'm not surprised. But yeah. I mean, the, all all our many. Um, uh, academies of psychotherapy will want copies of this. I mean, it's crucial for for training purposes. So please go, please go outside and say that very loudly. Well, I'm, going, <laughs> I'm certainly going to. I'm going to be recommending this to all, all my colleagues. Oh, that's lovely. Thank you. But let us let us talk about your book uh, yeah. in this really interesting subject that uh, just grabbed my attention. I mean, look at me. I'm <laughs> I'm a thousand years old. Uh, but the midlife, the midlife crisis, that area of of 
but more just midlife. Uh, it, you go beyond just talking about the the the, the obvious, and um, uh, it's um, uh, it's. I'm working. We're, we're going to have an article, uh, a section, uh, some sections for it in the magazine, and your your adventure in back into the history, into the build-up. You're talking about even going back into mythology, talking well, about back Freud. To Homer. And we're going all the way back to the very first text we have, the, yeah. the Odyssey, which is a great midlife story. Yes, wow. people we, People have been doing this forever. It's like, yeah. I mean, we're talking it's about it and we're getting more, but please tell us what um, what was the really that draw, drew you around? Was this a, a, a great passion? Were you directed with um, uh, by, by a publisher? Were they, they opt you? What, what was a bit of the story that brought it to us? And, and again, this approach where you've taken it from such a, a long bow you've drawn through history. Well, um, I, uh, when I was in my late 40s, I'd been running my own business for about 25 years, and I, uh, I had a late third child, and, got, uh, uh, and when we had our baby in my late 40s, our third daughter, I got incredibly tired. I was working terribly hard, and I had a kind of, uh, I suppose, a breakdown. I just, one day, I couldn't get out of bed, and, and, and for three months, I was sort of polaxed by... And I thought, I don't want to go on doing just this for the rest of my life. And that was when I decided I'd had about 20 years psychotherapy with a wonderful woman called Heather Adler, who'd been herself analysed by Jung, and that had a great impression on me. But she'd always said I was far too old to practice, to, to train. Anyway, aged 50, I started um, I started training, and it, and it was a turned out to be an eight-year training. And um, I also did an MA on, on psychotherapy, and my dissertation was on the midlife crisis because I had this material. I'd, I'd uh, kept lots of notes and dream accounts, and, and it was... So the only reason I became a psychotherapist was my own midlife crisis. And <laughs> I, I'm with you. I'm, I'm the same. Matt, Matt, Matt is but a mere youngster. Uh, yeah, well... But, yeah. That's the great. I mean, Heller Adler, my my wonderful therapist. She, I, I finished with her at nine when she was ninety two. She um she retired at ninety eight and and um, died at one hundred and two. Wow. And I used to go and spend you know a marvelous hour with her. But often she'd fall asleep. And at the end of the session, I'd have to shake and say, "Hello, I'm going. here's the money." And you know, so the longevity of psychotherapists is terribly attractive when oh, that's you're good. fifty. And you think, well, God, I've got another an extra twenty years to a potential career. Anyway, so that was it, and and I'm a great devotee of Jung, and I've been out to Kuznak, and I visited the Bollingen Tower and met his grandchildren, and was shown around the tower, and and he had this four year massive midlife crisis, mm. and uh, and I document that in the book because he's the, he, and and that's when he started writing about it. And and it made him as a man. And indeed, Freud had a similar midlife crisis from about 1915 to 1920, uh, when he just, ev everything changed. And he, as I say in the book, he wrote Beyond the Pleasure Principle as he came out of this period of devastating loss. He, he lost his daughter. He, so many of his friends had been killed in the, in the war, First World War. And, and he wrote Beyond the Pleasure Principle, which completely changed his view on, on how human beings are, are driven. Um, so, and, and then I, I'm a huge fan of, um, uh, of, the, of 
Lincoln and FDR, who I, I've always read biographies of them, and they had these colossal midlife crises and turned themselves into these remarkable individuals who, who gave humanity such uh, a tremendous service. And it's true also of Gandhi, who had, when he was 49, he had a midlife crisis. And, um, and Mandela, he went to Robin Island and had a terrible time when he, in the first part of his incarceration mm-hmm. and 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 this kind of experience has a transformatory effect and it increases the ethical presence and the stature of uh, of people like that um and we need my god we need people like that at the moment and there aren't many many about um i mean there's i used to because yeah. there's a lot of exhaustion in uh, in in the modern world, uh, brought about what? by many things, uh, yeah. but mostly by the the excessive um, excessive display of conflict that we have, that yeah. and the the lack of engagement in in well engagement and in cooperation, and so I think that the the great the great um, uh, healers, the great connectors, are are, are very. Difficult. It's very difficult for them to emerge at the moment. What do, what do you think? Well, I quite agree with you. I say in the end of the book that I think we're in the middle of a 200-year uh, species midlife crisis that started in about 1914, because that from 1914 to 1945, we had 30 years of a level of barbarity unmatched in human history. I mean, you did not want to live... If you were unlucky enough to find yourself on, on in Picardy or Flanders, or between the Vistula in 1914 to 1918, or between the Vistula and the Volga between 1941 and 1945, you were in the worst place at the worst time of history. Mm. I mean, the, the and and we now see that that process is continuing. I mean, with the pandemic and and now what's going on in Ukraine, we're still. This is, but this can be a transformatory experience. We've got to give up. Um, We've got to give up economic priorities and um, and and strategic military priorities, nationalistic priorities. Otherwise, we'll have a, a species extinction event. We we might. I didn't think I'd be thinking we might have another nuclear exchange, but mm. that's possible now. And we certainly, if we're going to be spending our time worrying about wars in on the fringes of Eastern Europe, we're not going to be spending our time looking at global warming, and that will get us. Or, of course. AI, artificial intelligence. We had a series of lectures on the BBC by the great expert, I can't remember his name now, who uh, on artificial intelligence. My God, we're in a challenge. We're going to be in a challenge when that comes up. And the only way to get through these threats of ex- of an extinction event is by increasing ethics, global ethics, above nationalism and economics. We've got to be. Le- I noticed this. face. Yeah, because because what was particularly Matt, I know you've got something there, but I just quickly just grabbing on what I loved about the the story of Jung and of Freud, besides the fact that it took it back, it took us back into the historic um, you know developments of psychotherapy and yeah. uh, psychoanalysis, and and you know which was directly is directly related to therapists and what they're interested in. But it's also a, a metaphor or analogy or an, an example or a, a, a case study of this of this dramatic 
uh, sort of transformational change, where Freud basically said, oh, my God, everything I've said up to now is wrong. Yes. Or inappropriate or not as appropriate. Yes. And rewrote, as did with uh, Jung. And this is what you seem to be suggesting here. We need to actually, something needs to jerk us up saying, oh, my God, we've got it wrong. Well, what Jung believed in, he had a tremendous belief in this uh, concept of enantiodromia, which is a Heraclitian term from the Greek philosopher Heraclitus, that when a position, a system or individual has a position which is fixed on, let's say, the uh, uh, on the horizontal axis, when it loosens itself and it, go, it will go to the extreme, and he says that's what human beings do, and that's what the midlife crisis does. It's an enantiodromic um, experience. And the world will, and the species will do that. What happens on the on the micro level will happen on the macro level. If it doesn't, we won't survive as a species. So we've mm. got to make this change and get away from. I mean, nationalism is over as a as a viable way of organising our political life globally. And in many ways, the the pandemic showed that. And I think the the, the sheer um, solidarity in the West. And I wish you know, India would join and possibly China. I mean, you just cannot behave how Putin is behaving at the moment. It's it's unacceptable. Yeah. Mm. And and so this is an enaniodromic moment when we have to change the paradigm. It's a paradigm shift from from the way we look at the world. But 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 that has ha- has to happen at the individual level and a cadre of individuals who can become the Mandelas and the Gandhis and the Lincolns of the day take on the, the historical challenge but and they will emerge I think mm. so so let's um so assuming the the micro you know does reflect the macro yeah. let's let's bring it back then to an individual level and let's tease out a little bit more about how a midlife crisis becomes as you say um humanity's secret weapon can we just yes. sort of extrapolate a little bit on what that means well um the idea is that um, if I if I can just read something mm, uh, uh, Jung wrote um, uh, when he was asked whether there'd be a third world war, this is in his very famous face to face interview, which is available on on YouTube and is a must for anybody who's interested in going into this phase. It's it, um, he he in this interview he was asked by John Freeman, who interviewed all these very these world figures, and he, he went out to Kuznak to make the interview because Jung was the year before he died. So what, and John what Freeman is asked, this? What is this? Is this? 19, 1958. 1958, and, okay. 1960, and he died in 61. Right. And Freeman uh, asked him, looking at the world today, this is three years before the Cuban Missile Crisis, looking at the world today, do you feel that a third world war is likely? Jung answered, we are so full of apprehension and fear that one doesn't know exactly what it points to. But one thing is sure, we need more psychology. We need more understanding of human nature because the only real danger that exists is man himself. He is the great danger and we're pitifully unaware of it. We know nothing of man, far too little. His psyche should be studied because we are the origin of all coming evil. Now, in a sense, that's very prescient because nobody, I mean, most of my my three daughters and and most of their generation all have psychotherapists now. Psychotherapy Mm. is a a, a mass 
um, activity. And so we are learning more and more about the psyche. Your book, I mean, what we were saying before the podcast started, the understanding of epigenics, it might mean that we can understand the problems in the Russian psyche after the terrible hundred years they've had. They're so traumatized that it's very understandable that they should be so paranoid. And I think that basically we are, because it's it's almost part of an evolutionary process, we are becoming more aware of our psyche and the shadow and and the, uh, what happens in projection. And so as the critical mass of individual experience occurs, and we're all so busy, and the pandemic has speeded up this process, I don't know about you, but are people queuing around the block after the pandemic for, for um, psychotherapy? I mean, we've never been busier. Uh, yes, yes. So, yeah, there's an overwhelming need. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And, and, it's, and but it's the, it's it's also the understanding of the need for what. Um, uh, I mean, I've got it's the need- development drive with individuals. I'm sure you know that's basically what Jung says in in his theory of individuation. Yeah, yeah. That the re- purpose of life is to develop. That yeah. th- that's why we're here. We're, we're here to go through a series of transitional phases that turn us from children to adolescents to eventually wise elders, because it is the wise elders that, as I say in the book, that nurse the culture through the the traumas that the warrior class um, uh, uh, cause. So, so uh, again, I'm, I'm, sli- I'm slightly getting away from the individual experience, but I think that there's a tremendous overlap between the two. And yeah. Yes, I think I think what, what what really is is so much inherent in what in what you're saying is there's grand opportunities uh, on for change at times in life. I mean, there is a there is also a discussion about a a development that occurs around the around the age of thirty. Um, well, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And no uh, about that. Uh, I mean, using the metaphor of. Um, of astrology, which probably isn't uh, empirically verifiable, first Saturn return. Have you that, come across that? Right. Yes, yeah. I'm not, I'm I, I was a, a, I had a long relationship with someone involved in in, in, in astrology, and the pattern of it, I think, yeah. is, very, is very relevant. Well, it's a metaphor that is quite well, it works quite well. Yes, and it's looking at that the therapist sitting in their in their rooms with someone, perhaps at their thirties, but that's uh, yeah. this, this time we're talking about the midlife. In looking at the opportunity that uh, this dilemma, this this crisis, that the client is sitting there saying, "Oh my God, yeah. I, I don't know what to do. My I've left my life." I mean, my simple example: I, I was um, I thought I would have no midlife crisis because I was an actor. I was doing what I wanted. Uh, I had a little inheritance. Uh, everything was wonderful. But I got to my midlife crisis, and I suddenly discovered that I wasn't famous, and that the, <laughs> the acting work was dropping away. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a time of enormous change. It was, yeah. it was unbelievable, and 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 I've ended up here, which is the most wonderful, the most wonderful outcome. So yeah. this this thing, uh, Andrew, just talking about that that therapist sitting there looking at the person opposite them, how uh, it's the, and some of it's the, the gift. It's the gift. In the wound, and I find this again, as you probably know, second set return is sixty. So you've got the midlife crisis. You've got the, you've got the adjustment at thirty, and then when you're finally making into adulthood and taking on responsibilities, you've then got the midlife crisis somewhere in the forties or fifties, and then you've got 
well, uh, the second Saturn return. And, and, and I find I get a lot of people in their late 50s, early 60s. And once they've been through that process, uh, they what happens is I call it bringing in the harvest. They have a tremendous 60s, as clearly you're having, uh, mm-hmm. when they're incredibly productive, incredibly energetic, because they've got rid of their complexes and their neuroses. that They've spent so much of their energy and time mm-hmm. expended on. Mm-hmm. And so basically, the, the, you know, the Chinese pictogram for crisis is exactly the same as the Chinese pictogram for opportunity. So, oh. a, so a midlife crisis is a gift, but you've got to find the right assets. And this is something that Winnicott writes about. He says that we somehow find the assets that allow us the emotional support that allows allow us to cope and, and re-experience what he calls our primitive agonies from, from our early childhood. Yeah. And psychotherapy is a wonderful vehicle for this. And I mean, it's so moving watching people transform themselves from uh, from uh, who are desperately trying to find ways of dealing with the difficulties they face and through as they work through this traumatic material this new higher self emerges i mean uh, the, the the complexes and neuroses never go completely but we are able to sort of bear them in a different way so matt this is what we talk about with client resources isn't it mm, that's right yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, what i wanted to um just comment on here is that the midlife crisis isn't always um it doesn't always turn out to be you know the great opportunity um and, and so c- can you speak to some of the things that don't go that way yeah yeah do we blow well I, I mean I, can, I i i can remember. i think alcoholism is a terribly difficult thing to cope with in midlife because mm. I, and i find most alcoholic you know i have a perhaps an 80% success rate with people with midlife crises but al- with alcoholics i have a 20% Right. Success rate. I think, and the same would be true of drug addiction. There's something particularly pernicious about uh, how alcoholics, their need is so great that they have a very, very um, uh, flexible uh, relationship with the truth. Uh, and mm-hmm. and I, I've almost got to a stage where I'm only prepared to work with people who've gone to AA or some kind of rehabilitation because, because you become, as a therapist, part of the uh the kind of uh, the, the inability to ever say what's really happening i mean because alcoholics it, it's i mean I, I always feel that recovering alcoholics are some of the most amazing people i come across mm. and that they seem to have a kind of enlightenment because they've dealt with something so difficult yes uh, yes and this 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 nature of uh, uh you know what i'm hearing is the uh, uh People are coming with the crisis, uh, coming yeah. with the things falling apart. But it's it's almost like the therapist, the the, the task of the therapist is to is just to help them uh, to look at it in a different direction. To say, okay, that that uh, framework, that foundation is falling yes. away. But what is it? For, what is it revealing? Is this the is this the the, the well, task the therapist can add to the process? Well, I think basically it's it's a question of hand-holding through the crisis. You you become a, a fellow traveller, and if you've been through the crisis yourself, you you're familiar with the terrain, and um, you may you may not have the answers. And in a sense, there uh, it's not for the 
therapist to provide the answers. It's merely to be there holding the client. Um, I mean, I, I think boundaries have to be much looser when you're working with somebody who's, like I say, if somebody's really at the heart of a crisis um, and it's, it's almost killing them, you have to make yourself available. Uh, I mean, I saw somebody yesterday who rang me on Sunday. It was a bank holiday in England yesterday. And he'd had a terrible weekend with his parents and was totally traumatized. And so seeing him on a, on a bank holiday, and then I'm seeing it, I'll see him each day this week. Um, it has to, you, you, ha, you, you have to go a, a further mile at those moments mm. of crisis. The big moment when I had my crisis was when my therapist said, Heather Adler said, you can ring me any time of night and day. Now, that I never did take up that option. I mean, I was talking to her every day, but I never rang her at an inconvenient time. Um, but it was a gesture that meant so much to me. I felt so held by that. So, um, and, and I think, you know, you our, our very inflexible boundaries need to be put to one side here um, to some degree. I mean... Yes, Winnicott. Yep. Winnicott took people on holiday with him in crisis. He had people to live with him. Yeah. I mean, and Jung, Jung would take people in crisis on his sail with them on the on his boat. There's something about compassion and and the human to human experience at these moments of huge intimacy, where mm. we need to not constantly think about the rules of psychotherapy. Mm. And I mean, because I, I was thinking about the, the memory reconsolidation. I mean, this, yeah, yeah. this opens us up for that. What, what do you think, thoughts there, Matt? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if, if there's, you know, this window um, that's open for memory reconsolidation, um, you know, within, what is it, is about a six-hour window. Yeah, um, four and to if, six. Yeah. And, if, and if you're there, you know, in a, a sort of continually with the, with the client, seeing them through that, you'll see that consolidation happening if you keep them in the right state of mind. Um, so, I was going to make a... I was yes. just going to make a comment that we are trained um, very well these days to have very uh, solid boundaries from uh, making sure that that doesn't happen, those sort of, you know, connections. Um, and so, I mean, I guess each school is different in, in how they approach that. Uh, but uh, I think generally a, a lot of therapists would agree that they're trained um, to be quite separate um, in that respect. They keep very strict hours you know, and you you don't allow clients to incur, you know, um, mm. on your other private life and time. Yeah. Yeah. The human the human being comes in and just interferes with our excellently uh, the laid plans. Uh, our that, business. That's the thing. Isn't that we need business. Maintain. Our business plans. Yeah, but are you saying we need to absolutely maintain these very strict boundaries at, at all times? Oh or no, feel around, no. No, I'm I'm saying that our training should take into account what you've just said, and yeah, um, yeah. and be a lot more flexible. Well, I'm very pleased you say that. I absolutely agree with you. And and these are exceptional occasions. I mean, you can't go on like that for for month and month, month after month. But it, at the crucial moment, uh, you are such an important fashioner of the future of the person who's sitting in front of you. Mm. Um, can I just ask you about um, this? Are, are you saying that you actually have sessions that run much longer into four or five hours? Is that what you would... It's, it's very rare. The, the profession doesn't allow it. 
Now, I had a very strange, an unusual apprenticeship with Ernest Rossi, who came out of the the experience with Milton Erickson, where certainly yeah. an hour and a half is almost minimum. Um, you know, I, well, I hardly I, yeah. ever do less than that. But um, I have uh, uh, some clients, very uh, very few, because a lot of people are able to take what you say in a session and go away and work with that, and it takes them, you know, four, five, six, seven days to to actually process all the material. But I do have uh, a particular client who, um, uh, just as you were saying, uh, Andrew, with the one that, that you've got coming in now, has got this immediate problem that I, I allow texts uh, at any time. Texts, I don't, the phone calls, I can't. Yeah, I can't yeah. And so there's almost there's almost daily, and I, I'm sitting here in my, my metaphor for her experience, and it's midlife, but it's, yeah. it's, it's confused with a lot of other, you know, complexities. But I, the metaphor is she's in a car with two pedals and uh, she only really knows and feels comfortable pressing one of those pedals, which unfortunately happens to be the brake. Uh, and I, yes. keep, I keep saying to her, you've just got to press the accelerator. It's the only way you're going to go. And she presses the brake harder. So <laughs> it is that persistence. So I, I feel we're at the turning point, this breaking point that you also talk about, that it gets more and more intense towards yes. this point. Erickson talked about that, that when she does slip her foot over to the accelerator, it's going to be so exciting. It's going to be fabulous. Yes, yeah, that's a marvellous analogy. I'm going to plagiarise that for, <laughs> with my <laughs> okay. And my and the book. It's a wonderful, uh, a wonderful metaphor. Yeah. Um, I wrote a paper that I gave last year uh, to the uh, C.D. Jung Society of Bristol on th- what I call therapeutic love. Ultimately, what these these individuals are looking for at these key moments is love, um, mm. and uh, 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 and that has to have some sort of unconditionality about it. Um, it, I, I think the, the whole concept of love is a hugely problematic issue for our profession uh, because there's a whole erotic transference and counter-transference problem. Um, but I think, basically, Shandel uh, um, Ferencik wrote about it very movingly in his therapeutic diaries, how, how he, he was the first therapist in the 30s writing about this, saying that what all our, our clients really want is love, the love they didn't get from from their their parents um and i feel mm. when i'm doing a, an assessment and deciding whether to take on a client um i've i've got to sort of feel that i could really love this person i mean in um uh, uh not in any erotic fashion obviously that's completely out of the question um mm. but mm. Uh, you know mm. the um the difference between agape and eros yeah um agape being uh, the kind of parental love um and and that's really what i feel we're in the business of reparenting um uh, so often and and uh, and basically it's like as if they're pressing the iPlayer button to get the experience that they should have had at six months a year and getting it when they're 50 mm. Um, mm. and uh, and so uh, you know I, I think it's a i think it's a the, the, w- reading your book, what really interests me, if I c- do you mind if I just move on to this into because this is no, all that's, relevant. That's the light. Um, yeah, please talk is, about us. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's so important. In, as you know, I'm I'm I got all Cosolino's books here, yes. which I've 
and and I you you the fact that you're a friend of his, he's my one of my great heroes. So I was thrilled to hear that you know him personally. But 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 he made a tremendous impact, and he's mentioned in the book that that we are becoming we're kind of neurologizing psychotherapy. And uh, he famously says that. Um, uh, that psychotherapists and uh, applied psychology, and you take that even further in this marvelously comprehensive account of of the way um, neurology and psychotherapy and now genetics uh, all merge, and uh, and we're all. But the one thing, I, do you know um, a book that's been tremendously important in in the UK and America? Do you know the, uh, Ian McGilchrist's book, The Master uh, and His Emissary? Uh, um, no, Matt, never, heard, never heard of him before. Never heard of him. <laughs> no, you have. Matt is our expert there. He's doing a lot of work and actually writing a, a number of things. So, Matt, please. Um, did, did you know Ian, Mag- Ian McGilchrist used to be on our um, board um, at the very beginning he in 2013? Well, but, you're so well connected. But then he but then he decided to write that book, and so we never heard from him again. <laughs> yes, he got a bit famous what, for us. You mean yeah. the, the book that he's just written and published, which is in about three volumes? It took him about ten years. You, or yes. was this the book he was writing? Oh, the, the first one. Oh. Yes, he, once that came yeah. out, he just became. Maybe he just came too busy. That was all. This, this yeah. stuff. Well, he's a, there. We are. Oh yes, that, that's the new one. Yes, yes. yes. That's, but I haven't looked. Haven't had time to look at that. But the master and his emissary, of course, yeah. looks at the neurological. Uh, parallels between the right brain and the left brain, and so mm-hmm. and and of course, what neurology is primarily doing is looking at left brain empirical rational pragmatism, you, yes. you, uh, which is based upon uh, uh, upon hard data that we get from MRI scans and brain autopsies and uh, and all the other work that you're involved in. Um, but the right brain, which he says needs much more balance with the left brain because we live in such a rational pragmatist empirical culture he wants the intuitive and and the soulful to have its place and um, brenny brown's probably somebody you've had mm. on your show who i like very much yes. but her axiom if you can't measure it it doesn't exist yes. and i just wonder yes. whether, whether this interface between the very scientific rational pragmatism and the intuitive soulful, bearing in mind that psychotherapy means psyche, the soul, therapy to heal. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do do you have any concept of those right brain uh, um, human longings that, uh, uh, and how do they fit into um, into the, the scientific model? Well, Absolutely. I'll just, so, I'll just make a quick comment before you come in, Matt, with that, because you're the expert there. But, but just when we talk about science and we take a bit of effort with the, uh, in some of the book, but also in some essays we've written afterwards, to move away to say science has been stolen and it's been re-given uh, a different semantic definition, which is, which is a, a, a great error. So bring the reductionist mechanistic yes. thing is, is a, a new form of saying uh, what science is. Science is really about the knowledge of and yes, the, the yes. investigation of. And so that's what we've, uh, that's the way we approach the, the term. And in, um, in many ways, quantum mechanics has has followed that line. That's I mean, right. as, as yeah. Niels Bohr said, you can only talk about the quantum world using poetry and Heisenberg's mm. uncertainty principle. The, the empiricism doesn't work in 
in quantum mechanics, and I think it's true to some degree in, in our field, and I think there are certain similarities between depth psychology and quantum mechanics. Yeah, yeah. I mean, quantum mechanics is a bit of an oxymoron, isn't it? Because we 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 can't use a machine metaphor to describe yeah. what we're what we're discovering in the quantum realm. And yeah. and this, similarly, when it comes to human behavior, we we have this um, two hundred year history of applying the me- mechanical, you know, mechanistic metaphor to everything that's yeah. or- organic yeah. and biological, which doesn't yeah. doesn't work. Um, yeah. You know, where things that flow and live uh, are not machines, but you know, we persist in our our machine metaphor, yeah. uh, which is yeah. which is the realm of the left hemisphere, which the left hemisphere understands things mechanistically. And so, for yeah. our our perspective is that we come from a, a a curiosity approach. We 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 see the whole, the whole person, the whole context, um, the the whole situation, and from there we're able to then utilize the the aspects of the left hemisphere that is is very skilled in being able to uh you know break things down into components into bits um but then that information is to inform the right hemisphere once again um and so that we have a a greater intuition we have a greater understanding of yeah. the whole and so just as in the the Gilchrist book the master and his emissary the right hemisphere has to be the master the information yes. has to come back across to the right hemisphere to have an appreciation yeah. of the whole and the situation that we find ourselves in now is that it it remains in the realm of the left hemisphere and we're we're very much driven yes. by the left hemisphere and that is not a not a state of mind that's going to be um, helpful in any way in discovering reality. Yeah, and of course, McGilchrist makes the rather nice. He says that the the, um, the right hemisphere is is dependent on the left hemisphere, who's a kind of high achieving bureaucrat who's brilliant mm. at all the the data and and giving the. Uh, the uh, the facts of the world. Uh, Wittgenstein said in his notebooks when he was in the trenches in the First World War, um, to be religious is to know the facts of the world and not the end of the matter. And I've mm. always liked that that quote, that that the empirical data we have is not the end of the matter. That something odd going on um, uh, at a and and actually the, the there was something uh, the subtitle of your book was it um uh the way the mind deals with the brain or something like that there was a distinction between mind and brain yes yes we certainly do we certainly do uh, follow that we and we continue to talk about the the nature of mind we uh we had uh, uh, fascinating discussions uh, we were the microbiologist the other day with talking yeah. about you know sort of what is it but it it we 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 certainly have had a lot of stabs at getting a, at what it is to find out what we know is wrong. I mean, it's not just from the brain because, of course, then the body and the cells uh, would have no relationship, and they do. And of course, then the DNA would have no relationship, but it does. So, uh, and as you're saying, the epigenetics, which which change um, in relation to experience. Uh, yeah. So, therefore, you know, one of the things I was when we were talking about epigenetics and midlife. 
as you go through that crisis, you are changing um, your your the nature of the way your gene expresses itself because you are changing the phenotype, the the yeah, the, the yeah. thing that you can see, the thing that you can observe, and for the for the thing you observe, for for Jung to have come out of and and but Jung, but particularly Freud, to come out and say, I have a complete change of mind and a complete change of attitude, that must com- uh, have genetic changes as well and Absolutely. gene expression uh, framework. So it's uh, really interesting. Yeah, context. I, uh, sorry. Sorry, I was just going to say context is all important, which yes. if, if we yes. talk about left brain again, you know, the left brain misses the context. And so when we're talking about, well... Yes, any, that's any, a very good way of putting it. Yeah. Anything, mm-hmm. really, we're talking about midlife, you know, uh, crisis and transformation, uh, context uh, has everything to do with that and if you if you try to isolate the person isolate i don't know their psychological well, their makeup their environment yeah all those their history and uh, and their potential yeah so, yes. so there's a lot to consider when you're when you're looking at that person who is who is sitting there and it's difficult when they're in their 40s uh, or so sometimes and they're saying oh my god it's a disaster it's sort of like oh for god's sake grow up <laughs> but it but that's what's so beautiful about your book. It reminds us that this is not only uh, a useful, it's an opportunity, it's a necessary aspect of development. It's a rite mm. of passage. And of rite course, of primitive passage, cultures, yeah. uh, Primitive cultures have formal rites of passage. In Australia, the Aboriginals go walkabout, don't they? Does that still yeah. happen? Or it certainly did. Does well, certainly as part of their culture, yes. When, yeah. when, they, when they have the opportunity to to have freedom, you know, free access yeah. to their, their cultural lands and, and so on and so forth. You know, and in India, the sannyasins leave their family after they brought up their children and, and mm. become uh, sort of holy holy men wandering around. And and we don't have those rites of passage. We just say, well, you start your career when you're 22 and you can finish when you're 70. I mean, life is mm. too precious. Time is too precious to spend it all doing the same thing for the entire life. Um, I just wanted to read something that Jung wrote Um from Memory Streams and Reflections, which seemed to me a, a, a complete description of epigenetics. Can I just read this paragraph? Oh, please, yes. Um, I feel very strongly that I'm on the, under the influence of things or questions which were left incomplete and unanswered by my parents and grandparents, more distant ancestors. It often seems as though there is an impersonal karma within a family which is passed on from parents to children. It has always seemed to me that I had to answer these questions which fate had posed previous generations and which had not yet been answered or left unfinished. And that seems to me what what the, I mean, how do you feel? Does that a, is that oh, what we're trying it's to? Oh, it's a beautiful description. As 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 we were also you know we were saying before when we were chatting, epigenetics is just we've we've found a a, a description, we found a, a behaviour, we found an element of yeah. of uh, what's going on within the system. We've been able to differentiate ourselves down to this microscopic level. But uh, he, Jung is showing us there. If you were a, a keen observer and a sensitive observer, you could see it, and you can actually. I, I'm just. I can't recall them, but I'm recall. Uh, I'm remembering some of the the, the sections in Shakespeare. Um, yeah, and yes. then you go back to the atomists. Uh, you know, back in in Grecian times, people could yeah. see it, but I just didn't know what it was. Now yeah. we have a better idea, and that's the key. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I had a um, a client whose um, grand great grandfather and uh, his three brothers all died on the um, on the Battle of the Somme, the first day of the Somme, and and her her great grandmother, her grandmother, her uh, her mother, and then her in her midlife crisis saw all their relationships with men through the sense of loss. That this terrible trauma that happened to this family, where an entire generation of men were wiped out in a morning, um, it hundred years later it was still impacting on this poor woman, mm. and um, and because she just saw she could only see men through the lens of inevitable loss and all these previous generations of women had lost their their husbands through early death or divorce or um desertion and she would find a way of ending relationships so so she would be left and would experience a sense of loss and of course that's classic freudian repetition theory which is that we mm. we constantly are drawn by the things we're most familiar to. That's what we want to follow, rather than something that's curative and developmental. And that and, thing of you know what what makes things familiar, and this and this extraordinary aspect that obviously an, an epigenetic, which is a, a memory of uh, yeah. of experience, doesn't remember in events. It doesn't remember in uh, in those sorts of things that we do in cognitive. Yet that. Biological that that psycho that 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 biopsychosocial milieu manifests yes. in our conscious awareness these similar types of of uh, yeah. of, of event type basis. Yes. It's quite extraordinary how it's all tied yeah. in. Yeah, and it's I think that, that we're going to find that that memory is not just uh, an epigenetic memory affecting brain regions for memory. That it's going to be a whole body. Yep. memory we, yeah. we we've talked to people you know about the memory of the cell um there's uh, the memory and the neural architecture of the heart you know this, this is a whole body thing that we're talking about exactly oh. yes the, you know that book the body keeps the score well i mean you mm. you refer to use that it does mm. i mean the body is a, a far more reliable response system to our psychology isn't it where we use all our defenses to hide behind but the body you know it all comes out yeah. in the body and, and of course, our trouble is we're too stupid to understand it. As, <laughs> as, as someone said, the, the the only trouble with understanding the brain is that we have to understand it with the brain we've got, and the brain we've got can't understand itself. <laughs> uh, well, but, but who was it you said that the brain is the most complex um, article in the universe, the human oh, brain? Yes, there are a few that have that have said that. Indeed, <laughs> I think Einstein said something of that nature. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Well, Andrew, as we wrap up, um, is there anything you'd like to leave our listeners with? Um, well, anybody who might be listening to this who's going through a midlife crisis, it is the portal, the entry into a new way of life that will serve you very well in the years to come. So you may find it very tough. And I hope you've got a good psychotherapist or and a, and a and a partner or a number of people who are going to support you during this difficult time. But it it is where you're going to find a tremendous redemptive experience that will allow you a very interesting, fulfilling, and rewarding last half of the life. I I I, I can't recommend the midlife crisis more thoroughly. Well, on that incredibly positive uh, uh, note and 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 inspiring. Uh, note for a lot of people who are sitting out there feeling a little uh, going crazy in their midlife. 
it's not. It's a it's a valuable crazy. Thank you so much, Andrew, for joining us and talking well, thank about you your very work. much. I, I'm terribly touched that I should be talking to uh, an audience in Australia. It's it's wonderful that um, the Zoom culture has has allowed this to happen. So, and I hope I I, I can't wait for Amazon to deliver the book, and I'm going to be. Um, uh, doing a big sales pitch to all my friends. I think it's a remarkable achievement. So many congratulations. Thank, Thank you, you so much. much. Thank you, Andrew. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. bye-bye. Well, we went all we went all over the place. <laughs> we um, did, didn't we? <laughs> but it, but it again in the vein of what yeah. we say. Yeah. Just because there's a topic doesn't mean that it's confined to 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 restricted knowledge and yeah. all the stuff yeah. Andrew's found interesting. Looking at the history, looking at the mythology, looking at epigenetics, looking mm. at at the nature of the of the macro, the social uh, the social metaphors to the micro, the the actual uh, person sitting there having in the therapy room with the midlife crisis. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. It can feel a little bit like saying, "Are you talk? What are you talking about?" But just listen carefully. Maybe even go back and just uh, draw mm. the feel the lines, feel the those strings of connection because yep. that's what makes everything so interesting. Now, look, Andrew. He also touches on neuroscience and that as well in his book. We we didn't actually get to talk much about that um, today, mm. um, but but go check it out. Midlife: Humanity's Secret Weapon. We'll leave a link in the show notes. I, I just love one of the quotes that he said, and that's gift in the wound. And there yes. is a gift in the wound. And, yes. and so whatever you're going through, know that there is a there's a transformational aspect to that. This is the this is the hope of humanity, isn't it, Richard? It it is so it is so fascinating that from the wound, it's really the all these myths we have and these metaphors, the phoenix, you know, ri- uh, rising from the ashes, all these elements are terribly important to understand and appreciate and you can get a little preview of the book and some he's written some additional work for us in the may edition of of the uh, science of psychotherapy magazine all right fantastic well look we really appreciate you all listening and if you do appreciate what we're doing here on the podcast we would love your support the best way that you can support us is by jumping across to the science of psychotherapy.net become a subscriber become part of the tribe dive into all of the wonderful uh, material that we've got i think we're almost up to a hundred issues of our magazine um, oh yes we're preparing a special one for that so that's great yeah look uh, as i always say we've got more material than you can poke a stick so put your sticks away and just come uh, poke around instead anyway matt it's great to see you again Uh, it's great to talk with uh, wonderful people again and uh, i guess we'll see everybody next week all right catch you next time bye for now thanks for listening to the science of psychotherapy podcast for more great science go to the science of psychotherapy.com